Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today our guest is Dr. Crystal Littlejohn. Professor Littlejohn's work examines race, gender, and reproduction. She's particularly interested in investigating how cultural categories shape behavior in intimate relationships and examining the consequences of these behaviors for health outcomes. Her work has been published in Demography, Gender, and Society and the Journal of Health and Social Behavior, among other outlets. Tonight, we're going to talk about her new book, Just Get on the Pill. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour, Dr. Littlejohn. Thanks so much for having me. So um, can you tell us about the book? Absolutely. Just Get on the Pill is about how our social approach to birth control fundamentally robs people of their reproductive freedom. Uh, so I draw on over 100 interviews with young women from the San Francisco Bay Area in California to understand how they experience pregnancy prevention with their partners and to figure out how our social approach is both hindering and helping their efforts to do so. And what I find is that although we take it for granted, gender really shapes how they experience birth control methods, particularly how they're able to use condoms to protect themselves from both STIs and pregnancy, but also how they're socialized to believe that it's their responsibility to prevent pregnancy using methods designed for their bodies. Yeah, it was an absolutely fascinating book. And I think it's one of those things where at first you're like, oh, of course, the pill is great. But then you start to question and you're really talking about like you said, the, the way that things are set up socially and the, the pressures that, it, that exist to use the pill. And I think it's a really great time for this book to come out because just as like a lay person and observer of the way that people talk about sex and reproductive health, just from listening to say like the Savage Love Cast or something like that, I've heard an increase of, you know, cis women complaining that their male partners won't use condoms or that it's hard to do. So was it anything in particular with the time that we're in now or, or something particular that sparked you to, to write this book at this moment in time? I think that's a great question. I actually didn't even go into writing this book, expecting that I would write about what I end up writing about in Just Get on the Pill. I imagined that gender was going to play a role in people's experiences, but I just felt really struck by their frustrations with their partners. And as you're, as you're talking about the cis women in the study, had a number of challenges just trying to use the birth control methods that are available to them to prevent pregnancy the way that they wanted to. And there is an increasing focus on the dissatisfaction that exists with the methods. And so I think it's a particularly timely book. And I wish I could say I, I could foresee things unfolding the way that they are with the increasing attention that's being placed on people's reproductive autonomy. That's not the way it worked out. I just happened to, to write a book that it ends up being in the public sphere right now. And to be clear, right, I'm it's what's going on right now, uh, specifically as it relates to Texas. It's just horrific. It's, it's a horrifying experience. And I think my work just demonstrates how important reproductive autonomy is for people, both in uh, contraception and in abortion. And I think what's absolutely fascinating about your book is that you are very clear to break down what you mean when you talk about sex and like reproductive biology versus systems of gender that serve to oppress people, or in this case, coerce people into using the pill. Can you speak a little to that a little bit more? Absolutely. The key thing that I get at in the book is that one of the things that feminist researchers have done phenomenally uh, over the last several decades is getting people to challenge this uh, relationship between sex and gender. And so thinking about sex as the categories that we place people into based on their bodies, but then also recognizing that that is a socially constructed category that shapes our understandings of gender, but sex and gender are not equivalent, right? So thinking about uh, male and female and intersex as, as sex categories, in addition to the countless other categories that we could come up with, and recognizing that 
while people make assumptions about how our sex categories overlap with our gender categories, they're not equivalent and it's gender comes about socially, right? We do things in gendered ways because we're taught to behave in very gendered ways, but it is not a function of biology. And so what I try and, and really get at in the book is that when it comes to birth control methods, people are just really comfortable with accepting what we call biological determinism, which is this idea that biology explains behavior. And so when we see that people who can get pregnant end up taking primary responsibility for preventing pregnancy, we say, well, that's the way it just is naturally, right? They're the ones that birth bodies and the methods are made for their bodies. And so that's just the way it goes. And what I really uncover in the book is it's not based on biology. This is not natural. People are fundamentally socialized into these roles. Um, and that's, that's a cultural phenomenon, not a natural phenomenon. So um, something that this book made me think about, and this is something that uh, women I know in real life have talked about, and not to keep bringing back to online stuff, but you know, we're in a pandemic and I've probably done more socializing online than ever. And I'm online a lot. Just the, the concept that a lot of times a woman will say that she's on the pill when she's not. And the way that sometimes when this is revealed, the male partner will draw an equivalency of saying you're on the pill when you're not is the same as saying you're you are when you're not. And, and that's the kind of ridiculous to me. Did that come up in any of your interviews? Like women just saying they're not on the pill, even though that they were, I can't remember from the book. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And it is, does come up a couple of times. I don't think I ever saw somebody saying that they were on the pill when they weren't, but they would sometimes say that they weren't on the pill when they in fact were. Uh, and it related to expectations that their partners had that they didn't have to wear condoms once they found out that the partner was using the pill or some other form of, of prescription birth control. And so the idea was that once partners found out, I mean, there was general resistance, right? right? There's oftentimes resistance to wearing condoms uh, on their part of their partners. Uh, but then, especially when partners found out that prescription birth control use was on the table, it could make it difficult, even more difficult to get them to wear condoms. And so there were a couple of cases where the women in the study would tell partners, I would just, and I wouldn't say they would tell them, they would hide, right? They just wouldn't be open about the fact that they were on the pill because they didn't want their partners to then get even more resistant to using condoms. And so what I write about in the book are those experiences where partners would say, well, you're on the pill, right? So it's fine. They didn't have to use a condom. And then there's kind of these tricky negotiations wherein women really try to make their partners respect their desires to actually wear a condom. Something else you talked about in the book that I thought was really interesting, and it kind of goes back to that, like, does biology determine behavior? You have a section about like whose responsibility is it to buy condoms and to have them on hand? in case you know vaginal intercourse occurs and what was interesting to me is that i was thinking like um looks like kind of a different track like well it's the guy's responsibility because like he might have a preference in brand or something like that you know but but what you really made me think about is that if, if people are, are having vaginal intercourse like the condom is touching both people's bodies so, so like as this woman might have a preference in condom brand too and i i never really thought about it that way but that's one of the things I liked about your, your book. It really kind of makes you think about these things in different ways that kind of break out of the way that we're kind of socially told to think about them. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning, like being surprised by uh, some of the stuff that ended up coming up in the in the narratives and in their stories. I didn't go into the book thinking that I was going to write about condom use in this way. But what I ended up realizing was that people absolutely linked condoms to people's bodies in ways that they imagined were natural, but that in my perspective, and as I show in the book, that's not the way they have to be thought about. And as I mentioned in the book, in, in linking, and if you go to public health websites, if you see uh, charts on birth control methods, there's very explicit sexual labeling, right? Well they'll, say, well, they'll call it the male condom and they'll call it the quote unquote female condom and really overlook the ways that that kind of labeling negatively affects how people interact around condoms, but also the ways that we exclude entire categories of people by calling it male and female and operating within the gender binary in the first place. And so it ended up being really provocative for me to see how accepted it is to think about 
condoms in this way. I saw it as a really important thing to try and disrupt by demonstrating the consequences of behaving that way, both in public health, but also in, in people's just everyday experiences. And not just people in the book, right? But in general, people's experiences trying to navigate their sexual lives in ways that feel empowering. And in this case, we're talking about pregnancy prevention, right? But of course, that's it's not just about cis folks trying to prevent pregnancy within heterosexual relationships. It goes far, far beyond that. Something else the book made me think about is you, you talk a lot about, say, the way that a health clinic or, or a Planned Parenthood might label condoms, like a male condom or a female condom, or the way that these women were taught maybe in health class or maybe by their, their mothers or their older sisters about condom use and um, the pressures on women to either insist upon condoms or to use a pill to preserve their male partner's pleasure, is that it made me think about how it comes up in pop culture. And how like I felt like this message was communicated to me like as a teenager, like way before I was sexually active, that like women insisting on condoms are like doing something wrong or they don't love their partners or whatever. I was thinking like when was the first time I heard this message? I could think of two things like and it's kind of. I don't know, ironic, because he just passed today. We're recording on the 14th. Norm MacDonald had a joke about this on, on Saturday Night Live about like, it was something like sex without condoms feels better. And then people laugh. And then he's like, but not that I would know. And like, <laughs> then he turns the joke around again. But I remember going to see that movie, um, Bad Company with Chris Rock. And there's a part where he's like trained to be a CIA agent and he gets jumped by his team. And they're like, how did you know it was us? So he goes one by one and he says how he knows it was each of them. And then he says, I knew it was you, Seal, because I took your wallet. Why does a married man need condoms? Does your wife know? Like the implication being like a married, like straight couple would never use condoms. So he must be having an affair. And I just remember sitting there in the theater and being like, there's no way his wife could have asked him to use a condom because she loves him, you know? So it's, it's just very pervasive. Yeah, and I think it really gets at a related issue in the way that we think about condoms, right? The idea is that if people are in monogamous relationships where pregnancy is at issue, then they don't necessarily have to worry about using condoms because the expectation is that condoms are for sexually transmitted infections, right? So if if the person is open to being on prescription birth control or, or is already on it, then there's nothing to worry about with using condoms because they don't have to worry about STIs. That was a real head scratcher for me, right? As I was going over talking with women in the study and looking at their interview transcripts and just really wondering why is it that we have to link condoms to sexually transmitted infections, or I should say only to sexually transmitted infections, when we know that they are quite effective at preventing pregnancy when they're used consistently and correctly. And so it's one of those things where because we have this kind of narrative, it only serves to disempower people from getting their partners to use condoms when they want them to. Because in, like, as you just mentioned, an easy fallback is to say, well, don't you trust me, right? Don't, why are you making me use a condom? And it's kind of this idea that trust doesn't have to have anything to do with a person's desire to have their partner use a condom. And in fact, it can be just because they are interested in using the method for preventing pregnancy. It could be just because they're used to having partners use condoms all the time, right? So regardless of or independent of their interests in protecting themselves from STIs, it could just be that that's a regular part of their repertoire. And there's no reason why it has to be assumed that people in a monogamous relationship relationship couldn't be using condoms. So I, I appreciate that reference. And I think it definitely resonated with what I found in, in people's experiences in the book. So this dichotomy where condoms in some conceptions are only about STIs, but then in other conceptions are only about preventing pregnancy. And, you know, I found myself thinking while you were speaking about the way that Porn plays a role in our conceptions of how condoms are used and whether or not condoms are used in the scenes of, of oral sex, let alone barriers for oral sex performed on a vulva, but whatever, <laughs> versus the kind of sex that tends to lead to pregnancy without a barrier method or birth control. And so... In certain contexts, all it's for is preventing pregnancy, and then in certain contexts, all it's for is preventing transmission of illness. 
let alone how many illnesses can be transmitted in any skin to skin. You know, scabies isn't considered like a sexually transmitted infection, but having a sexual relationship with somebody, no matter how many condoms you're wearing, it is likely transmissible, you know? Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where, where as I was talking to participants and, and as I mentioned, kind of reading over their stories, it's fascinating. They rarely ever talked about barrier methods during oral sex. They would talk about oral sex sometimes. They would rarely ever talk about using any form of protection uh, during oral sex. And I think it's also related to messages that people receive about the kinds of sex that they should be prioritizing in heterosexual relationships, and particularly the discomfort that some women in the study felt about oral sex period, just the discomfort with their bodies, their their discomfort with what their partners thought about oral sex and thought about their bodies. And so there's the ways that our gendered messages end up playing out here are just really, as you mentioned, really pervasive. And I think ended up encroaching on, on their ability to have freeing and pleasurable sexual experiences in a, in a number of different ways. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you raising the issue. Also interesting as someone who was a teenager in the 90s, where most of the sex ed was like, wear a condom, wear a condom, wear a condom, wear a condom, you know, and my parents are fairly like conservative on this stuff, but they would say like, you know, kids have to know how to protect themselves because it's life or death. Like, we don't agree with premarital sex, but we don't want you to die either. Wear a condom, wear a condom, learn, learn about condoms. So it was interesting to me to read this book and think about how attitudes have changed. And I was wondering if you thought that like better treatments for HIV have to do with a shift in attitudes. It's fascinating because women largely were less concerned about STIs than they were about pregnancy. Pregnancy was kind of the thing that they were most focused on. Black women in the study more often talked about using condoms to protect themselves from uh, STIs, but largely the real emphasis was on preventing pregnancy. And they talked about messages from their parents largely being about preventing pregnancy, right? The the issue was they talked about their parents feeling like they did not want a pregnant teenage daughter. And so the support really came for trying to help them prevent pregnancy and, and was much less focused on uh, helping them navigate STIs with their partners to the extent that it's related to improved treatments is is hard for me to know because they just talked about it so little (laughs) and I can't even say what their knowledge around improvements looked like just because it wasn't something that came up as often. What they talked about most was feeling silly sometimes, or, or they would say, you know, quote unquote, feeling stupid that they were so heavily focused on pregnancy. And so like in the interviews, they might sometimes have these kind of on the spot reflections where they would be, they would be asked about what they did for contraception in their relationship. And so just to kind of step back a little bit in the study, we asked women to talk about their sexual experiences with their very first partner and go to the most recent partner. And we'd ask about their experience with pregnancy, experience with contraception, side effects, et cetera, et cetera. And they would sometimes talk about their experiences with contraception and then on the spot, think about how they were so focused on pregnancy and not at all focused on preventing STIs. And they would sometimes say that they felt stupid for, for not recognizing it. But I think it's part of a broader approach, right? Where they're taught that as long as they're preventing pregnancy, they're doing what needs to be done. And while they have awareness that sexually transmitted infections are important, I just think there was much less emphasis on that being a central part of their experiences, which I was really struck by. But I will also add that I think some of it was also lack of experience with sexually transmitted infections. And so because many of them had never had anybody give them an STI or know anybody that had one, they just tended to treat it as something that was less serious to worry about. But women who did have experiences with STIs were more focused on using condoms and making sure that their partners use condoms for both pregnancy and STI prevention. One of the things that is coming up for me while having this conversation and while kind of reflecting on all of this is like in my own history, when someone has complained to me about 
side effects from being on hormonal birth control, I feel this fear that is like, are they going to be like, well, it's not natural, so I can't do it, or I can't take it. What's going to come? Where are we going with this? You know, there's some sort of tension between the reality that some people do experience really aversive side effects that lead to them discontinuing versus some of the the myths around birth control that are pervasively patriarchal in our society and, and just kind of balancing or like holding space for both of those realities at the same time is like, I don't know, it makes me anxious, you know? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I think my research actually started out focused on dissatisfaction with hormonal birth control. And I felt particularly struck by the lack of attention that there was in the literature at this time, especially, it's still the case now, but at this time, especially the literature focused almost exclusively on cis women and the, the literature that was out there didn't talk at all about dissatisfaction, even though I imagined it was important. Like I, I imagined that like, whether it's because of side effects or not, <laughs> that maybe people wouldn't use methods because they maybe didn't like them, but the literature wow, largely concept. focused on contraceptive compliance, right? Like how can we get people to comply with their birth control regimen instead of thinking about what might be happening that makes them quote unquote not comply. And so I started to research dissatisfaction and found that there were large numbers of women who were dissatisfied with hormonal methods of birth control and who reported stopping because of that dissatisfaction and side effects were a huge part of that. And so the way that I tend to think about this is trying to focus on reproductive autonomy as often as I can, right? And so the idea is that, as you're mentioning, right, I think people do get anxious when they hear about people saying, well, it's unnatural and I don't want to put it in my body. And especially if they have partners who won't help them prevent pregnancy, I think that people can start to get nervous about that, particularly in the study parents. The parents were really afraid of their daughters getting pregnant, as I mentioned, and partners might want the partner to be on a prescription form of birth control to help prevent pregnancy. And I think the challenge here is to try and think about what does it mean if a person says they do not want to be on prescription birth control and how can we help them meet their reproductive goals if that's how they feel. And so, and I should actually take a step back and say not prescription birth control in this case to say hormonal birth control, because some prescription birth control methods don't have hormones. But if a person says that they do not want to be on a hormonal form of birth control, rather than taking a gendered approach and saying, well, the best way to prevent pregnancy is for them to do that because their partners won't necessarily cooperate with using condoms, right? We could say, we need to do more so that they feel supported in preventing pregnancy using the methods that they want to use, right? If they don't want to use a hormonal form of birth control, there are other forms of birth control that they can use to prevent pregnancy. And my work shows that having partners use condoms as they want is really important. It wasn't just that women in the study didn't want to use condoms. Many of them felt really interested in using condoms, especially if they didn't like birth control because of side effects, but it could be a real issue for their partners, right? If their partners didn't want to use a condom, that could create serious challenges for the couple actually doing it. And I think in terms of our conversation a little bit ago, I do want to also point out that there were some women who didn't like using condoms. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, you know, give the message uh, or the impression that all women in the study liked condoms, right? There were absolutely some that didn't, but the vast majority of them believed in using condoms and tried to use condoms if they didn't like a uh, using hormonal birth control. I thought something else that was kind of fascinating and made me think about the way that I think about reproductive autonomy and reproductive justice. Some of the women that you interviewed seemed to be somewhat ambivalent towards pregnancy and kind of felt like, well, I don't want to use the pill for these reasons. I'm giving my partner that knowledge. And if I get pregnant, so be it. And I feel like, you know, autonomy has to include the right to be ambivalent. And that, yeah, that can be challenging the first time you hear that, but it's absolutely true, yeah. Absolutely. And I would also say that in my mind, I distinguish between being ambivalent about pregnancy in terms of having mixed desires, right? Kind of wanting a pregnancy and also not wanting a pregnancy. And women who 
didn't necessarily want to be pregnant, but if they did become pregnant, didn't necessarily see that as world ending or particularly life changing. And I think that that is something that we don't create space for, right? So this idea where we have people who may not want to be pregnant, but also don't necessarily have this sense that if a pregnancy occurred, it would be the worst thing to ever happen to them. And I think we don't have a language for that in our culture. And I don't think that we have as much comfort with that. There's this expectation that if people say they do not want to get pregnant, then that means that they firmly do not want to get pregnant and would be devastated if a pregnancy occurred. And I don't actually think that that's always the case. You have people who were clear, who clearly didn't want to get pregnant, but also didn't necessarily want to use prescription birth control. And if they had partners who didn't want to wear condoms, then they might just have sex without using anything, but it wasn't because they were kind of open to preventing pregnancy necessarily, although there were some cases where that was in fact how they felt. There were also just people who were clear that they didn't want to get pregnant, but if partners didn't help in trying to prevent that, then things might just have shaken out the way that they did, and it might have resulted in in them not using any birth control. And I think that that is something that we don't really ever talk about. And I think that people are much, much, much less comfortable making space for. They need to hear people that either want to be pregnant and are, and are clear they want to be pregnant, or they want to hear about people who do not want to get pregnant. And because they clearly don't want to get pregnant, they are actively doing everything in their power to prevent it. And when you hear people, you hear of experiences where it's like, the person most certainly does not want to get pregnant, but they also just didn't use birth control, right? Like that is something that I think generates strong emotions. And my book gets at, helps us understand why is it, right? right? Why is it that people don't always use birth control when they are clearly not interested in preventing pregnancy? And it shows that there are these larger social structures that matter for people's experiences. And we can't always just boil it down to pregnancy desires to explain how they're behaving. So I, I appreciate having a chance to talk about Something else that brought up, and this might be a little bit too specific for your research, but I've seen in other studies of women who had an unplanned pregnancy and they were asked like, why didn't you use contraception? And one answer that always comes up, it's like about the 10% mark. I just found one from 99 or whatever. They give an answer, I didn't think I could get pregnant. What does that mean? Like, I never really understood that. Like, did they think they were infertile or? Yeah. And so what I think is fascinating is that there are, of course, some people who might believe that they're infertile. And I would also add that there were women in the study who had partners, young partners, who told them that they didn't have to worry about wearing a condom because they were sterile themselves. And so it it actually came up that was a, a strategy, and I shouldn't call it a strategy. For all I know, the partners were, in fact, unable to get them pregnant. But it was interesting that it came up as an experience for a number of partners in the study where women said that they weren't using condoms with them, even though they might not have been on prescription birth control because they didn't have to worry about getting pregnant from them because their partner told them that they couldn't, in fact, get them pregnant. And so I think when we hear, I didn't think I could get pregnant, it might immediately make us think about the birthing person saying that they can't get pregnant, whereas in fact, it could be a reflection of their maybe uncertainty about whether or not their partner could get them pregnant. I think when it comes to other reasons why people might not feel like they could get pregnant, however, there is also this experience wherein people would not necessarily use birth control and they would continue to to have penetrative intercourse without getting pregnant and then think, well, they kept doing it and nothing was happening. And so maybe they weren't going to get pregnant. And so I think that is particularly why it's important for sexual education programs to communicate more explicitly about how conception works, because people oftentimes get this message, and it was really reflected in the interviews, where they're told, if you have sex without birth control, then you are going to get pregnant. That's what they talked about. If they had sex without birth control, they were going to get pregnant. What ended up happening is they experienced that for themselves. They ended up 
having sex, not using any birth control, and they did not get in, in fact, get pregnant right away. And so then it kind of disrupted this message that they had been taught that made them believe that as soon as they did it, they were going to get pregnant. And so when you have all of these constellation of factors, right, birth control methods that they may not like, partners who may not cooperate with using condoms, having trouble going to the clinic to get their birth control method, not having a ride to the right, all of the things that can come up, it could end up happening sometimes where people just wouldn't use anything and they didn't get pregnant and they could do it for six months or three months, six months. I, I can think of one person off the top of my head who was regularly using withdrawal and, and didn't get pregnant until 18 months later. And so when you have those kinds of experiences, it can reinforce people's thinking that they're not going to get pregnant. And so it doesn't mean that they necessarily think they're infertile. They just don't think that they're going to get pregnant. And I think their experiences actually bear that out, even though as researchers, it might make people feel like it doesn't always follow in their experiences. They didn't believe they were going to get pregnant. And they, in fact, didn't get pregnant after having unprotected intercourse for months at a time. And so I think if we could change the kind of education that people receive, then it could actually go, go a long way for helping people actually prevent pregnancy because they have more understanding of how conception actually works. And they're not being told that they should avoid having any intercourse uh, without birth control or else they're going to get pregnant, right? I think if the message is you can, in fact, have unprotected intercourse and not experience a pregnancy right away, that happens to some people, but it also happens that they can have unprotected intercourse and experience a pregnancy on that try. And so I think acknowledging the range of experiences, but nonetheless underscoring the importance of using birth control to prevent pregnancy, if that's what the person wants, because the reality is that over time, consistently having sex without any form of birth control will result in a pregnancy, even if it doesn't necessarily happen right away. I definitely made a joke about that when it was taking a while to conceive my son. I said, I don't think sex causes babies. He's got to be something. <laughs> No, it's, it is one of those things where when people actually have the experience, when they're actually trying to conceive, they can sometimes be frustrated by how long it can take because the message is that it's going to happen just like that. I don't know if you all could hear me snap, but the message is that it's going to happen immediately. And that's often not the way it, it happens for people. And it certainly wasn't necessarily the way that it happened for women in the study. As I said, it didn't mean that they wouldn't eventually get pregnant, but they wouldn't necessarily get pregnant right away. And that might be reflective of why some people in studies might say they didn't think they could get pregnant or that they didn't think they would get pregnant. And I think there's a difference between they didn't think they could get pregnant and they didn't think they would get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I think their lived experiences help us understand why they didn't think they would get pregnant because they experienced regular sexual intercourse without experiencing a pregnancy. Right. I'm also kind of reflecting on the ways that frequently you hear, particularly with transmasculine people, that they believe that they can't get pregnant and sometimes find themselves having fallen pregnant. And I think that that is such a great example, such a stark example that you explore around how gendered roles are really influencing the division of, of reproductive labor and these concepts of, well, men can't get pregnant that somehow will create this gendered sense that I, I don't need birth control then, or I don't need a barrier, I don't need any contraceptive pregnancy prevention. You know, I'm curious now, I feel like weirdly self-conscious while talking, what is your preferred phrase for pregnancy prevention assistance technology? <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. So I typically talk about them as contraceptives. So like if I'm doing my research, I talk about contraceptives. If I'm talking with people beyond the scholarly community, I'll oftentimes talk about birth control because that's how people talk about contraceptives. They talk about birth control. And I, I really love and I really appreciate you bringing up this issue because I think one of the things that is especially important is that we become aware of the ways that our practices are harming trans people, right? I think, as you're mentioning, there can be folks who don't 
think that they can get pregnant, right? But the other issue for me is that because of the ways that we gender birth control, we are not doing enough to help people understand what their needs are, how to get their needs met. Even as research has started to focus on the needs of trans patients in the birth control setting and and birth control clinic settings, we're not thinking about the ways that our gendered approaches are hurting trans patients. We're not thinking about how people's needs around gender affirming care interact with their understanding about birth control. And I think contraceptives feels more neutral in some ways than birth control, although it's the challenge is still contraceptive refers to (laughs) circumventing conception but I think it gets at this bigger need to make sure that we're grappling with gender. It's not just enough to say this approach is harmful. We need to make more people aware of all of the birth control methods that are available, right? That is great, but it's not enough to stop there. We actually have to interrogate the way that gender fundamentally excludes trans patients, non-binary patients, gender non-conforming patients, and the ways that it's, it's not enough just to say, let's change the labels on condoms. We have to change our approach to helping people meet their needs. And that's a bigger lift, but I think we have to commit to making that lift. I was having a discussion online with someone who's pro-life and I was talking about health conditions that might affect someone who could become pregnant and a reason that, you know, the law can't cover them all. And this person said to me something like, well, if a woman has a health reason why they can't get pregnant and that they would definitely abort because of their health, they should get their tubes tied. And I was like, okay, in general, like, I understand where that advice is coming from, but two things. One, a lot of people have religious objections to sterilization, and they're trying to make that inaccessible, especially Catholic hospitals. And two, and I looked this up and I didn't know this, tubal ligation has a similar failure rate to the hormonal IUD. I was astounded. And it's only slightly more effective than a copper IUD. So I was like, wow, like, and I had no idea. And then they wrote back. And they said, I feel for you and I understand your mindset. I hate how this is all on women to figure out. I think men should get reversible vasectomies. And I was like, wow, from a pro-lifer, that's a thing. I guess it was good faith discourse. (laughs) I think that because IUDs are so highly effective, it can make it where differences between IUDs and sterilization can appear to be meaningful. But I think that the methods are both among the most highly effective methods that people can use. But I think that you're raising an issue for me around what reproductive autonomy means in a gendered context, right? And so in my perspective, it also violates the reproductive autonomy of people who can get others pregnant to suggest that they should have to get a vasectomy themselves, right? Like in my view, reproductive autonomy means respecting an individual person's right to manage their bodily experience. That means that we shouldn't be able to pressure and coerce people who can get pregnant into using prescription birth control methods, but it also, obviously we shouldn't be able to pressure coerce them into getting sterilized, but it also means that we shouldn't be able to coerce people into getting vasectomies. I think when it comes to condoms, in my view, that's a different conversation because condoms come into contact with both partners' bodies. And in the experiences of the women in the study, we're talking about a penetrative experience where they have a right to say if their partner wants to engage in penetrative intercourse with them, then they have a right to say they have to wear a condom, right? It is it is fundamentally about their right to bodily autonomy. Whereas with prescription birth control, that's only affecting the person's body who's taking it. And so I don't believe that partners have a right to try and, and constrain people's experiences there. And so I do think there's this interesting way that we can see gender be invoked here. And I think many people are kidding, right? When they're like, we should make them get vasectomies. Right? I think many of them are actually kidding. I mean, <laughs> I feel like maybe not, I that's true. I, we can't know, right? I can't know. I think regardless, it's a violation of, of their reproductive autonomy, right? To try and suggest that they should get a vasectomy. And I, I should be clear, it's a violation for us to try and mandate that they should get a vasectomy to help their partners prevent pregnancy. I think that their reproductive autonomy is also important to consider here. This is a slightly different topic, but in your book, you cite Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. I read that book, and I think that was probably the first book about Black feminism that that I had read. And I was 
surprised to hear in your interviews that several of the people that you interviewed spoke so highly of the uh, hormonal implant. I forget what it's called, the one that goes in your arm, I think. Uh -huh, the implant. Because mm -hmm. that book made me kind of like horrified of it because it had these horrible stories of these women who were kind of coerced into using the implant and they couldn't get it out. And just in general, like, has the implant changed or is it just some people have a good experience and some people have a bad experience? I really appreciate this question because it allows us to get into a bigger issue around contraceptive technologies. And so the way that I like to think about all of these methods as simply being contraceptive technologies, right? They have the power to be liberatory and they have the power to be oppressive. And as you're mentioning, we've oftentimes used them in really oppressive ways, but the technologies themselves are not inherently oppressive. The technologies themselves can be quite powerful for helping pre people prevent pregnancy. It's just unfortunate that we've used them to coerce people. And so when it comes to the implant, there were people in the study who appreciated using implants, just they appreciated using IUDs. There are people out in the world who appreciate having their tubes tied, even though people have been forcefully sterilized and sterilized without their consent. And so for me, the bigger issue is being really critical in our approach to helping people prevent pregnancy and making sure that we reject coercive birth control practices in every domain that we encounter them, right? So that's why even as we're talking about vasectomies and if I'm on Twitter and I see people on Twitter bringing up vasectomy, right? On the one hand, I'm like, as I mentioned, like they might be saying it and they're laughing about it. In my mind, I still just tend to feel like we have to be careful about reproductive coercion. And I think when it comes to methods like the implant, right, the problem is that we have used these methods coercively. The problem isn't necessarily the methods themselves. And so the fact that women in the study liked the different kinds of, of hormonal birth control, to me, just reflects the idea that they didn't experience coercion around them and that that allowed them to feel okay using them. But I also want to highlight that there were people who talked about feeling pressured, right? My book is about people feeling pressured to use birth control. And some of them talked about feeling explicitly pressured by their providers to get on birth control. Some of them talked about the ways that marginalized people's bodies have been regulated around reproduction. And there's been incredible pressure on them to prevent pregnancy using sterilization and other methods. And so I think it's a broader conversation about what a liberatory birth control politics actually should look like. And it just reflects this broader history that we haven't necessarily had a liberatory birth control politics, because I don't necessarily think that's always been the focus, especially of these coercive programs. Co the coercive programs fundamentally was not about liberation. It was, it, was, it was about violating people's rights and preventing them from having children. And we're talking here about contraceptives, but when we talk about the ways that sterilization without people's consent has been used to harm folks with disabilities, to harm poor folks in the United States. It's just there's an egregious history of doing that. And I think we, we just need to be familiar with that history so that we can make sure that we continue to fight for a politics that is more reflective of reproductive freedom instead of continued violations of people's rights. It's a, not just a historical for people with disabilities. I mean, and I think you might have written about this recently with Britney Spears really brought this to the fore for a lot of people or, or brought it to mind. And I think it's really horrified people, but I, I think it's far more common than people realize. Absolutely. I'm, and I'm so glad that you brought this up because after I, I wrote the op-ed on, on Britney Spears, I had people reaching out to me like, what do you mean that this can happen? What, what are you talking about? And, and I think that they were just much less familiar with the ways that, as you're mentioning to this day, people with disabilities have their rights violated by others. And I think when it comes to sterilization, many people are unaware of the ways that women that were incarcerated just recently, you know, had their rights violated by uh, undergoing sterilization, oftentimes without their consent. And so we can think about it historically. And when, when I talk about historically and contemporarily, it's like, this was like five years, right? There's like things that are that are happening with the Britney Spears thing. It really emphasizes the idea that it is happening every single day. And I think that's why it's particularly important that we bring this to people's attention, uh, because it's hidden, and it makes people 
unaware of the fact that it's happening when it's it's really negatively impacting people's lives. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Karen. Is there anyone doing research on kind of the other side of this into men who are hesitant to uh, use condoms or push back when their partners ask them to use them? And like, do you think there's kind of a parallel there with definitions of reproductive autonomy and consent? There is research on the strategies that partners use to try and get out of using condoms. And I do cite some of the research in the book because when women talked about their partners not knowing how to use condoms, right? So sometimes they wouldn't use any birth control because a partner could say they didn't know how to use a condom or a partner might take a condom off, right? So they agreed to use condoms, but then the partner would remove the condom during sex. And it's part of of a broader research literature around how partners can sometimes do that very thing, right? There's one study that I'm thinking about now uh, where partners kind of talked about it being kind of a game, right? It's a kind of game where they can try and have sex without using condoms by coming up with a variety of different kinds of excuses to get their partners to agree not to use condoms. But then as we also know with non-consensual condom removal, right? Some of the women in the study talked about, right, thinking their partner was going to be putting a condom on. He told them that that's what he was doing, but then that's not what he was doing, right? So they would do things. They might snap their boxers, right? They, they're actively doing things to trick their partners into believing that they're putting on a condom when they're in fact not doing so. There is some research on condom removal and and strategies for condom non-use, but I think the research needs to expand and that's kind of been a call in this field for a while. And I think as we're starting to wrap up, I would also just say as we move to expand the literature in this area, I would also just encourage us to be mindful of not reinforcing the gender binary when we're doing so, right? And so not just really trying to resist this idea of now trying to have research on cis men and cis women and thinking that birth control is about this gender binary and instead recognizing that we need to be incredibly mindful and careful about making sure that our scholarship is reflective of our population and being reflective of our population means not adhering to a gender binary and making sure I, people say, talk about being inclusive, right? Starting with inclusiveness, right? Assumes that we're starting from a place that doesn't involve trans and non-binary folks and intersex folks, and then includes them versus thinking about this in, in, in expansive terms and meaning that we, we should be starting from a position of cis people's experiences. We need to be thinking about the whole population that needs birth control and making sure that we do everything in our power to make sure that that entire population is reflected in our research and gets their needs met so that our new scholarship that is supposed to be more expansive actually ends up being more expansive and not just continuing to exclude people. I'm, I'm really moved by that statement. I think, you know, there is a place for saying that because the roles are gendered, it does also make sense to refer to the contraceptive methods in gendered ways, even if they're not universally applied. Like, I do think that there is information that is lost by removing gender from labels or behavior. But also there's information that is lost by gendering the behavior and labeling the technologies, you know, the contraceptives. I guess I'm stuck in the nuance again. I'm sorry, I don't have an answer or a question, really. It's just like, oh, this is complex. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. And I, I so appreciate this. And I think what I would just say is, in my mind, I think about what's the trade-off between loss of information and reproductive violation, right? So what amount of information loss is sufficient to outweigh reproductive violation? And in my mind, reproductive violation is, is the key thing for me and making sure that people have their needs met is the key thing. And so you're right that it, this is complicated and hard. And I don't, I wish I could say, I, you know, I've been researching this forever. I wish I could say I knew what the answer is, but the way that I think about it is constantly trying to push us to be better. Right. So even as our labels are imperfect and labels that we could come up with that are less gendered or not gendered might be 
imperfect themselves, it might push us in the direction of getting closer to adjust reproductive politics and adjust birth control politics. And maybe one day we won't have to be talking about information loss because we'll be able to find a way to communicate what needs to be communicated without using the gender terms that we've adopted so far. I don't know what that is going to look like. You know, maybe you all can have me on the show again in five years as I'm doing this work and we can figure out what that looks like. But I really appreciate being able to think through what that looks like with you all, because I think it's it's super important. We will 100% have you back. One stupid joke question. And before I ask it, I want to remind people that we're recording this on September 14th, because um, I was curious if you knew about whether or not infertility caused by your cousin's friend (laughs) getting the COVID vaccine and leading to giant swollen balls is an effective birth control and what the gendered implications of that are. You absolutely win for a curveball question. Right? Like, I'm sitting here like, what's this question going to be? And then it's like, I did not see that one coming, but that is, that is fantastic. That is, that is fantastic. I just saw the news about that. So that's, I appreciate kind of grounding us in, in the current moment. <laughs> well, you know, your research is super relevant right now. Right. It is. It is. And, and relevant in, in a number of different ways um, that I think I couldn't have even necessarily foreseen when I was working on it and and doing the work. But I I really do appreciate the ability to share it with people. And I appreciate being able to be on the show to to talk through it and, and to talk about the implications of things with you both. So I really appreciate it. Where can people find information about you and your book online? Yeah, so you can go to justgetonthepill.com and on my website there, you can find more information about my book. You can sign up for my newsletter. You know, let's let's continue this conversation and, and keep in touch. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Professor Littlejohn. You can find me online at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. <laughs> You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.